it is a privilege to have Dean back again this morning, and uh, uh, we are so excited uh, about him being here. And uh, you know, like I had said when he was here last fall, we just we thought we got to we got to come up with another excuse to have Dean back here, and uh, and it is an honor and a privilege to have him here with us today. Would you put your hands together, welcome Dean, as he comes and shares this morning. great to be here. Uh, how many of you were here last night for Tony's message? Yeah, gosh. I already told him this morning, I, I extend the same liberty to, to Kevin and Barry, but uh, if I'm wandering off course, you all just come grab the mic and, and do something with it. You know, just, uh, Tony, the, the mic is yours. I will happily surrender it. Um, uh, in, in the presence of a father, you, you just listen. Just, just, just shut up and listen. Now, I, I want to say something more about that. Uh, when, when, uh, when you drink deep water. Uh, that comes from a long process of digging a well. The deeper the water, the cooler, the sweeter, the cleaner. And um, what Tony and Marilyn are offering now is the result of choices they made 50 years ago to live a certain kind of life in a certain kind of way, with a certain kind of faith and fidelity to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, that is actually those choices are available to all of us, we just don't make them. I bless you guys. Can we just, uh, can we just pray in the Spirit for a little bit? Let's just pray in the spirit. Father, we bring this morning and tonight to you. Uh, Have your way. 
you can, the, the mic is yours above all. You can, you can do whatever you want. Ephesians 5 says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Well, duh, right? So, clearly we're supposed to get more out of this than the obvious. But the obvious is so obvious, we take it for granted. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It's interesting how um, modern photography mimics the, the language. We talk about the exposure of a film. In fact, the word light used here is photizos, which is where we get our word photon, which is the particles of light. Right now there's photons flying around this room because the lights are on, so there is exposure and we see each other. If the lights weren't on and all the doors were closed and there were no windows, we would all still be here, but we wouldn't see each other. There wouldn't be visibility. So what is present, if it is in darkness, remains invisible to us. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means we aren't exposed to it. And in uh, back in the dinosaur days when they, in my college years, we were still developing film. I worked for the news, student newspaper. We were still developing film on paper in a dark room. We've lost this now with our digital cameras. We can do anything. But you would have to compensate if the original photo was taken in dark circumstances you would have to shine more light on it, let the light penetrate the surface of the photo longer. That was the exposure length. So if I took a photo in uh, not daylight but inside dark circumstances, then in the development I would have to overexpose the photo paper to the picture so that it had enough light for us to see what was really there. Paul prays this, this magnificent prayer in, in Ephesians 1 that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. It's that same word, photizos, so that you'd get proper exposure. See, the picture Paul is setting up here, pun intended, is that we all have Polaroids in our soul. We all have certain photos. The question is, are they the right photos? And so his prayer for the Ephesian ecclesia was that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they could get the right image capture, the right exposure point, so that the lies and shadows and false things would surrender to the brilliant illumination of Christ. 
and our lives would become governed in the spirit of wisdom and revelation according to the knowledge of Him because there can be competing light sources. And actually the competing light sources are darkenings of the soul. And we end up with photos inside. We're all carrying around photos that we by which we define God. Whether it's scriptural or not, whether it's true or not, these photos hang on the, the, uh, the, the halls of our heart. You know, we all have photos in our home, key photos of family and family moments, and, and they form a channel of memories for us by which we understand who we are and our family and our kids and all, the, all those things. Well, we have that with God in, in a, in a, in a uh, father-child relationship. We hang photos in our heart by which we accuse him, by which the enemy uh, distorts him, by which circumstances have clouded our judgment. And they're false photos. They actually darken the soul. And so we have to get a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And the eyes of our hearts have to be enlightened. And I'll, I could read all that language in Ephesians, but I'm not going to. Because I want to move on. Out of this, just, just look at Psalm 25 for just a minute with me. Psalm 25, 14. Uh, there is not a there is not a systematic interweaving of of stuff that uh, Tony has said and I have said, but I I'm trusting that the Lord is actually stitching together a story. He has he has certain things that he's emphasizing in the father son dynamic. There's certain things that I'm emphasizing in grace and covenant dynamics, and those are really highly highly dependent. Highly compatible and necessary truths. And so I'm just trusting that the Spirit is weaving this together. Uh, on uh, Thursday night, I spoke uh, primarily about the Ark of the Covenant. And it's the Ark of the New Covenant, really, that I want to uh, emphasize out of that message. This morning, I'm going to talk about two covenants in Abraham and Moses. I touched on some of this uh, last time I was here, but I want to re-emphasize it in light of having a little more uh, bandwidth to tell a larger story. Tonight I want to talk about, so we have uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is an old New Covenant paradigm, the two covenants of Moses and Abraham, which is an old New Covenant paradigm, and then uh, later tonight I'm going to talk about the two tabernacles which was David's tabernacle and the tabernacle of Moses. And now all of these in different ways, if we can kind of step back from the immediacy of our church training, uh, our, our uh, uh, traditional photo systems, you know, we're praying for a revelation upgrade. And this is, God, would you break in with new wavelengths of light? You know, the spectrum of light is far wider in both directions than what we actually see. 
the visible spectrum is a narrow part of a spectrum that goes this way and this way. We can't see that, but it's there. And I believe in the spirit, there are spectrums of light. He wants to enlarge our visibility spectrum so that we can get in the spirit of wisdom and revelation, there's, there's, there's fresh understanding for today. The things we have to do today are not, uh, uh, yesterday's revelation is not sufficient. We have to build on it. We can't discard it. We aren't getting rid of it, but we have to go to another place to have the confidence and the authority and the assurance of our mission, our identity, our purpose, and our Father if we're going to live as sons in the earth. And as I said on Thursday, the earth is groaning for us to accept this. Psalm 25, verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. Out of this place of friendship, friendship is... The secret counsels. You know, there's things you talk to your best friend about or your spouse about that you don't share with anyone else. So in this secret counsel place, Jesus came and said, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. So out of this place of friendship, the delight of God is out of that place of secret counsel to talk to us about covenant to make known to us, covenant. And that word make known is even more intimate. It's the word yada in Hebrew. It's Adam yadad Eve. It's the most intimate kind of understanding of someone else. Yada is secret counsel taken to the nth degree. And he wants us to out of friendship and intimacy to deeply, deeply know in a, in, a, in a way that joins us to him, his covenant. Adam and Eve made the mistake of choosing the yada of God and yada with one another. It says they actually yadded the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They came to know something else. And they lost that intimate knowledge of God because they chose a different source. It's the worst move in history. I could know God completely and walk with Him, or I can know stuff. I can know facts, I can know good, I can know evil. That's actually poison to the soul compared to being connected to the source of all life. But God continued to know them. It says God, uh, God Yahweh yadded Israel in their affliction in Egypt. He didn't let them go. We come down later and we find out in the, in the Greek what Paul was even praying there that we would know the love of God. It's the Greek equivalent of yada. It's gnosko. And it's that intimate. In the Greek, gnosko is the intimate equivalent of yada because it says Joseph did not gnosko marry until Jesus was born. 
we're back to the intimate connection. We can know the love of God. There's a restoration where this is all made complete. But out of this friendship and knowing, one of the high pleasures of God is to help us know His covenant. I tried to make the point, and I'm going to keep doing it, because God is covenantal. Everything He does is by covenant, by virtue of covenant. It comes out of His essential goodness. It is motivated by love. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of His throne. All these things, but the agency of His interaction is covenant. Seven covenants through human history. Covenant with creation, covenant with uh, uh, Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, covenant with David, covenant with Jesus, new covenant through Christ. I missed one in there, but everything God does is covenantal. And so we have to, when we talk about that many covenants discussed through Scripture, out of the secret counsel of God's heart and His desire to disclose Himself to us and in the place of friendship talk to us about covenant, we have to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation about what covenant He's disclosing. Because we can end up kind of with this synonymous process where we think it's all the same because it's all called covenant. Now just hit pause on that for a second. I'm trying to uh, weave together two or three thoughts. I'm going to talk about what righteousness is today. Tonight I might touch a little bit on what holy means. But those are subtexts to this covenantal discussion, the two tabernacles, the two, the two covenants, and Righteousness and holiness we know are key in all of these things. But here's kind of the contrast point I want to bring. I am greatly concerned that for hundreds of years we have essentially lived in karmic Christianity. What does that mean? I don't know. Let me think about it for a second. <laughs> if you go back, let's, let's get a big picture view of history. Moses, at the end of his life, uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, he is summarizing before he passes, uh, just a helpful way for you to understand Deuteronomy because it feels like he's telling the story all over again. You read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy kind of goes back and does all of that in encapsulated form. It's, that's, that's right. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's called the, uh, the, the uh, Deuteronomy is the retelling at the end of Moses' life. He knows he's about to pass on. And he's gathering Israel around him and saying, I need you guys to really get it. I need you to really understand what's been happening. So I'm going to review it all. I wrote four books under the inspiration but to, you know, to, to help uh, lay out from Genesis to now, from creation to now. But I need to pull it all together so that you understand. And at the very end of Deuteronomy, it's the song of Moses, and he's singing a, a summary of the summary. 
And in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, he says that the Most High appointed the nations. It says, he gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind and he fixed the borders of the people. Now there's a whole, there's a whole line related to that that God willing, I would love to go into over about five messages sometime that will peel your cat back like nothing. Like nothing. It's an awesome storyline that is not real well understood in Scripture. But at the, at the top level that we're going to do today, what Moses is describing is the events that happened at the Tower of Babel. God has been working with mankind in a universal way from the six days of creation. Adam and Eve are, 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 are created. Their sin is almost immediately introduced. There's problems. Mankind falls. There's murder. He, God intervenes with a covering for Adam and Eve, but they're very primitive in their understanding of God. Corruption soon follows. It gets so bad that God has to cleanse the earth and start over. And yet even in light of such a massive uh, cleansing and judgment, and boy, the storyline there is, wow, that's an eye popper. Why would God have to go to that link? I'm not going to get into that, but zowie. It is, it's, it's huge when you think God had to start over. It was that bad. And yet, immediately after that, you have a guy named Nimrod who, instead of spreading out across the earth, he's gathering the people to himself, binding them to his will, and building a tower to heaven. And it says he builds it. It specifies the building materials. The building materials of the region were stone and mortar. But he built a tower out of uh, uh, wood-fired brick and pitch. And he tried to build it to the heavens. Now why would you build something with wood-fired brick and pitch? Immediately after the flood, you see absolute rebellion in the heart of man because he says, I'm going to build a tower to the, he- to the heavens. You flood it again, I've got waterproof material. My mortar is going to be tar. It won't erode under a flood. The rock, it's not rock, it's brick. And I'm going to get above whatever you do. And I'm going to get into heaven. And I'm going to change things. So immediately after a flood that was meant to be a reset... And God is still dealing with the nation, with, with humanity as a whole. Once again, they're tethered to a dark agenda. The, the, the photon is utter darkness. The photographs are all wrong, and the agenda is absolute rebellion. So God intervenes again. And at the Tower of Babel, he divides mankind. And that's what Moses is talking about here. He gave to the nation, uh, the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind and fixed the borders of the peoples. I'm not going to go into it too much, but what he's referring to here is in Genesis 10 and 11, it's called the Table of Nations. And it's when he basically said, fine, there's rebel angels, there's different power structures that are resisting me. You can have each other. 
He comes down, he, he, he scatters their language, and there's 70 nations recorded in Genesis 10. It's called the Table of Nations. And he says, you guys can follow the gods you choose. I'm going to give those gods to you, and I'm going to give you to those gods. And mankind is divided. But the next verse, he says, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. So what's happening here at the macro level of history is all of the nations are created in this moment. There was only one people in one language. Now there's many people in many languages and they are given over to the darkness they have preferred. In the flood, in the Tower of Babel, in the ongoing rebellion where God was trying to deal with mankind at a, a, a universal level rather than an individual or personal level, God sees fit to say, that's not working and, and the uh, principalities and powers that are part of the satanic rebellion against God are fit rulers of those people and those people are fit subjects of those rulers. So you all can have each other, talk your own language, but the very next chapter out of the Genesis 10, 11 is all of a sudden we're introduced to this guy named Abraham. And we go from... 11 chapters of God dealing universally with man and the persistent problem of sin and rebellion to a guy named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees who is given this unusual, vague, hardly reliable promise by the one true God, hey, Abram, I've seen you and I'm making a deal with you if you'll take it. If you'll just follow me, I'm going to take you to a place you do not know, and I'll bless you. And if you can get just a little bit of the, the heartbreak of the story up to this point from the divine perspective, that what started so good in a garden with fellowship between a father and a son, and a human family that was meant to represent the divine image, has fallen so drastically over just a few generations to the point that God had to flood the earth and start over with one family. And within just a couple generations again, they're building towers meant to withstand another flood because they want to climb into heaven and overthrow God. And the whole earth is in rebellion, but this one guy in the capital city of Nimrod. He's in Ur of the Chaldees. He's in the territory of Babylon where the Tower of Babel was cast down when the Most High scattered the nations through the judgment of not being able to talk to each other. And he comes to this guy in that, the, the, the stronghold of iniquity and says, will you follow me? And he's not real specific because he's looking to see faith. And Abram says, I'll do it. I'll take that deal. And now if you can get a sense of the tragedy up to this point from the divine perspective, you can understand why God was so gushing and effusive toward Abram. He's like, oh, Abram, you made the best deal, my friend. You have no idea how good this is about to be for you. It's going to be so good for you directly that I'm going to trip, uh, 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 
uh, ripple that goodness into indirect blessing. So that I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to bless those that bless you. If people just like you, I'm choosing you and I like you. And if they like you, I'm going to like them. And if people don't like you, they just signed up to be my enemy. And now bear in mind, Abram doesn't know this God. Right? There's a, there's a war in heavenly dimensions going on at a scale we can't imagine that in some respects was even clearer in that time with angelic factions, fallen angelic factions battling for supremacy. The Most High, who is Yahweh, has given all the nations what he's basically said. And oh, I, I, you, you got to test me, but you can't test me because I'm not unpacking it all, so I'll have to do it another time. But, but basically Yahweh is saying, you all think that you've got power, you are not recognizing that I created you, and your power comes from me, you're in rebellion, you're trying to lead my uh, human creation in rebellion, fine, you're fit for one another, go have your way, the odds are now 70 to 1. Because there were 70 nations that were formed out of that, and God says, you watch what I do over history, I'm going to take this one, and before it's all said and done, the true God will be known. So you all go do whatever you do. I'm going to start with a nation of faith, a family of faith, to build a nation of faith. And he says, Abram, just follow me. I'm going to take you on a journey. We're going to come to a place. You don't know it, but when you get there, all my promises to you are in this place. It became known as the promised land. And over the course of Genesis 12, 15, and 17, he keeps enlarging the promises. He keeps saying bigger and bigger things. God loves this man of faith so much. He's like, actually, I'm going to shift all of history around you. I'm choosing you. I'm never going to let you go. All the other nations are going to battle against you. They're going to hate you because I've chosen you because they hate me. You hear the echo of that in what Jesus said about us, right? But he said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm always going to be with you. And my blessing upon you is perpetual. Kings will come from you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. This is so, so good. Just come and follow me. Abram says yes. And what we have is the Abrahamic covenant that starts to set up a contrast between how God wants to do things in the earth his choice, his preference, his modality, and what we see in all the other nations, and even today you can see every other religious system operates on the principle of karma. Every other system operates, it's actually a Buddhist uh, Hindu concept, but karma is you get what you deserve. Karma is that your life and even your past lives and your present actions all form a composite system by which you are either blessed or cursed based on what you do. 
and how you perform. I'm going to get into this, so just stick with me. But what we see told throughout Scripture is essentially two covenant structures. There's seven covenants, but there's only two covenant structures. There's either covenants of performance or covenants of grace. And here's where we need to start with the very first covenant in the garden. The covenant in the garden was a covenant of performance. And it didn't work. A covenant of performance never works. In the simplest, most pristine and pure conditions, there was no sin yet, the world was new, and man was not fallen. There were only two people, and there was only one rule. You can't get any simpler than that. You can't get to another baseline and have a covenant of performance. So no sin, perfect conditions for success, two people and one rule, and they blow it. A covenant of performance will always fail even in the best of conditions. Now, bounce over to Romans 4.11 real quick. Romans 4.11 says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Say the righteousness that he had by faith. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. I'm not, I, I left the circumcision part out because that's just a part of the equation, but it's not the, the, the essence of what I want to talk about is that Abraham practiced a righteousness by faith and he had to practice that righteousness by faith if he wanted to be the father of all who would believe. So, when it says that righteousness would be counted to them as well, it's talking about us. If you want to participate in the transaction that Abraham had, where it says in Genesis 15, and Habakkuk later talks about it, he received righteousness by faith, not by works. Verse 16 says, That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace, and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That's why it depends on faith. Why? 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 Because a covenant of performance will always fail. So the promise that God made to Abraham, I will bless all nations through you. All peoples will be blessed through you. There is a short in the circuit if that relies on people to achieve. Because a covenant of performance in its simplest form still 
degrades and breaks down. And so for God's promise to be true, it couldn't be dependent on the performance of people. What he promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed would fail if it depended on the people to achieve. So when it talks about the seal of righteousness, we have to step back and evaluate this word righteousness. Righteousness in its simplest form, actually uh, maybe a, a more complex and then simple form, Righteousness is right standing, right? That's the idea. It's right standing. It's the qualitative and relational status determined by fidelity to the terms of God's covenant. The qualitative and relational standing determined by fidelity to the terms of God's covenant. If you are in right standing to those terms, then you have relational equity to receive what those terms grant you. Stated more simply, righteousness is obedience to the terms of the covenant. You can think of covenant as an exalted, more serious form of a contract. So in a contract, right, you make a deal, you, you, you specify the terms you have for your part of the contract, buying a home or selling a home or doing a business engagement, whatever, Contract specifies your terms, the other person their terms. You agree on terms, and then a failure to hold to the terms leads to a lawsuit and a breaking of the contract. A covenant is that to the next level. A covenant is a, a mental commitments with full heart requirement and sobriety and engagement. A covenant uh, is a blood oath. You don't actually make blood oaths anymore when you buy a house. But if you were making a covenant to buy a house, there would be blood. It's that serious. And the amazing thing about the covenant with Abraham was, Abraham said yes, and that's all he did. He said yes in faith, and then God puts him to sleep when he's spelling out the terms. When God cuts covenant with Abraham, he puts him to sleep. He describes the terms and the blood that was shed. You used to have to cut covenant. So cutting covenant meant you took animals, you divided them in half, you sawed them in half, you put one half over here and one half over here. There might be five sheep, two camels, and, and you know, uh, uh, a bull. And you create this trough through which the two covenant partners would walk. And to walk through it was to get on their long robes all of the blood of the dead animals. And they would walk through together once they had agreed on the terms of the contract. And when they came out on the other side, what they had said in cutting covenant was, let it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I break faith with you. Let me be torn asunder. Let my blood be shed as has happened with these animals. That's pretty serious, right? It'd be a lot less home buying. <laughs> if we did covenant home buying rather than contract home buying. 
Oh, bank, <laughs> let it be done to me. That big blood all over the place in 08 when the banks failed, right? So what happens in Genesis 15 is God comes along. He's developing his covenant with Abraham. Abraham keeps saying yes. It's a, it, the promises are beautiful and powerful. God says, let's, let's ratify this. And they cut covenant together, except he puts Abraham to sleep. And God alone walks through. And what he's saying is, Abraham, by faith you have said yes to me. I will bear the full requirement of this covenant. Your part can't be, I, I can't trust you with your part. I had a simple performance covenant in the beginning, and they blew it. If this depends on you, I can't bless you the way I want to, and I can't fulfill my promise to all nations through you. I just need you to keep believing me. I just need you to stay in the place of rest. I just need you to lay there and let me fulfill my word. I'll take the price of the blood. I'll take the cost of the oath. I'll take the, the challenge of the fulfillment. The nations are arrayed against us. It's just me and you, my friend, but you stick with me and this is going to be good. Meanwhile, all the other nations are developing karmic systems. All the other nations, the gods of those nations and the fealty of the people to those gods is essentially what must man do to please God rather than a God who decides he will be pleased with man and receive him. See, when the angels came before Jesus died on the cross, before he suffered, before his uh, 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 the prayers of Gethsemane, the scourging, the hanging, the bleeding, the dying, and the resurrection. Before any of that, angels showed up and said, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men with whom he is pleased. See, every other God system, every other national alliance with false gods says, God's not pleased with you and you've got to overcome that. You've got to figure that out. You've got to get yourself fixed because the cause and effect of karma is in place. You're going to get what you deserve and if you, don't, if, if you get something bad, it's because you deserve it. If you get something good, it's because you did enough right to earn it. And every system is striving to please those gods. And in a general, in the general language, if you're going through life and something happens, you'll, you, you might find yourself saying, well, that's karma. Well, that's right. That's how the world works. It's just not how the kingdom works. So, Abraham is in this extraordinary deal with God. <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary that he is sealed with righteousness by faith, but if righteousness is obedience to the terms of the covenant and he's asleep, 
then everything comes down to out of the place of rest will you keep believing? And can you believe if you aren't resting? And furthermore, because righteousness, that word gets so fuzzy in our mind over time because we're so prone to law thinking, you have to think if, if righteousness is obedience to the terms of the covenant, which covenant are you being obedient to? Because you get to choose. You can be obedient to the covenant with Moses if you want. The problem is the covenant with Moses is God permitting Israel to relate to him out of a karmic mentality. I went down like a rat sandwich right there, but <laughs> I'll unpack it. You have to know which covenant you're under. So in the covenant of grace, I'm just going to demonstrate this real quick, and I'm going to blow through this. But I talked about this uh, in a little more detail the last time I was here. I just want you to look in the covenant of grace. There's no curse. Because it was unilateral blessing from God, you don't see one point where God says, and Abraham, if you don't do this, I'm going to curse you. You read Matthew, uh, you read uh, Deuteronomy 28. Talk about peeling your cap back, right? Yeah. You get about 15 verses of really good stuff and about 56 verses of absolute terror. You don't do this, you don't do that, you fail in this way, you miss this. God's going to curse your livestock, your house, your grain, your wheat, your children, your blah, 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 right? I mean, you, go, you read Deuteronomy 28, and it's stated again, I don't remember where, in uh, Numbers or Leviticus summarized. Oh, the, the, the trade-off, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, Abraham, in Genesis 12, now God's made this deal with Abram, so he moves to the promised land, there's a famine, Abram goes to uh, uh, Egypt. He's in this primitive early stage of this faith walk with a God who's made covenant with him with only blessing promised. Abram's a, a, a human man. He's uh, subject to failure. I don't know if he was supposed to go to Egypt or not. It doesn't really say. It may have been a moment of disbelief because he's just moved to this place and it's hard. He's like, man, this is hard. I'm going down there because they got food. He goes down there. When he goes, he tells Sarah, his wife, Hey, sweetie, you're a beautiful woman. And Pharaoh's a powerful guy. And if he knows I'm your husband, he'll probably kill me so that he can have you. Now, ladies, doesn't that just give you the warm fuzzies, right? It's like, oh, honey, thanks. You think I'm pretty. No, he, he goes, and that's what he does. He absolutely throws his wife under the bus. Hey, Pharaoh, she's my sister. Pharaoh takes her into his harem. Karma would say Abram should get spanked. And every wife in here would say. Instead, God, who is faithful to his covenant shows up 
to Pharaoh in the form of plagues, strikes Pharaoh's house, Pharaoh gets revelation. Pharaoh's in darkness, he gets a revelation, he goes, that's not your sister. You tricked me. And Abram exits Pharaoh's presence having failed miserably and blessed greatly. He leaves with livestock and slaves and it's the beginning of the prosperity of Abram out of total failure. But God said, I like you trusting me in all your mess and weakness. You've said yes to me and I took you at your word and for all time it's me and you against the world. He gets to Abimelech in the Philistines in Genesis 20. Does the same thing. Hasn't learned his lesson. Sarah, let's try this again. God shows up to Abimelech. Hey, Abimelech gets a spirit of wisdom and revelation. God shows up to Abimelech in a dream. Says, you touch that woman and you're a dead man. Now this is covenant faithfulness. But it's not coming out of a karmic system. This is covenant faithfulness. Abram leaves enriched with livestock, slaves, and a thousand pieces of silver. His son Isaac comes along. There's another Philistine king named Abimelech. Isaac is, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Isaac has Rebekah. They're in the land of Abimelech. He says, sweetie... You got good genes, you're really pretty. And I heard good things about dad. <laughs> you know, he was in a couple situations like this. I'm afraid, let's do this. And Abimelech of the Philistines is looking out his window one day and he sees Isaac and Rebekah kind of, you know, snuggling up to each other. He's like, I don't think that's a brother and a sister. Which was Isaac's story. Let's act like brother and sister. That's not how a brother and sister treat each other. And in Genesis 26 verse 12 it says, it's very specific, it says, Isaac sowed in that land and in that year of that sin a hundredfold. In that land and that year, right in the place of his failure, right in the place of his betrayal, right in the place of his sin, right in the place of his weakness, he sowed a hundredfold. It says the Lord blessed him and he became rich and gained more and more. Jacob was a swindler and a deceiver. He tricks Esau, but he inherits the covenant blessing. And here's part of the point where I say you can choose. Jacob did, was not in line to receive it. Esau was. Esau could choose to inherit that covenant or choose to forfeit it. It was his, but he got to choose. And Jacob did all kinds. He tricks Laban. He tricks Esau. He still prospers. Now this nation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has raised up a nation. They go to Israel. I mean, they go to uh, Egypt again. They go down to Egypt in slavery. 400 years of slavery, and God delivers them with a strong right arm, takes them out of slavery, 
And what happens? The people complain at the Red Sea. What happens? God parts the sea. He has rules about collecting manna and resting on the Sabbath. And, and so you aren't supposed to uh, uh, search on the Sabbath and you aren't supposed to, you know, there were, there were certain rules related and people break the rules related to the Sabbath and manna and there's no penalty. People gather extra manna when they aren't supposed to instead of because you're supposed to only gather for that day and some people didn't yet trust God. They hadn't been brought into that faith relationship so they would gather two or three days worth on one day. No penalty. God just coaches them along through it. Don't do that. Trust me, one day at a time. They complain about hunger and God brings quail. They complain about thirst and God provides water from a rock. They're still in the covenant of Abraham. They're still weak. They're still sinful. They're still broken. And God just says, hey, I made this deal with your great, 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 great grandfather. I extended it to his son Isaac and, 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 uh, and Jacob, the 12 tribes. You're all my people. See, God chose Jacob as his allotted heritage. The Most High said, I will demonstrate my nature and character to the family of faith and the people of faith. And in their weakness, I will remain faithful. And they're still fully under the covenant with Abraham, and they're blowing it uh, 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 over and over again. But something starts to happen in Psalm 78, 81, 105, 106, start to unpack this. When you're reading the history of it, you don't necessarily see it, but it moves from complaint to accusation. The people in their weakness, the language and the interaction they start to have with God is no longer, why aren't you taking care of us? Is the Lord among us or not? It's beyond complaint to, you brought us out here to kill us. That's what starts to happen. Not just, God, why are you allowing these difficult things and not coming through in our timeline, but you actually brought it. Think about the difference. Hey, God, where are you, man? I'm hurting. I'm hungry. This doesn't make sense to all those miracles, the judgments on Pharaoh, the parting of the Red Sea, the water from the rock, all of the demonstration of God's faithfulness and character and heart are actually so you can just get us out here and kill us. And human complaint and weakness becomes a rebellious posture of outright accusation against God, no longer trusting His goodness. And so God says, let's go to a mountain, and unfortunately the deal's going to change. He's like, I've actually demonstrated absolute faithfulness, and you could enjoy that faithfulness as your fathers did. And as you have. But it's beyond the point of rescue at this, at, at this point. You are so stubborn and stiff-necked, you will not see me as good, and you require a different relationship. Your complaining spirit will always refuse to believe because it's unwilling. You won't respond to my leadership with trust and hope and gratitude. In spite of all my kindness, 
You are actually despising me. So I'm going to create a different mode of relationship. We're going to go back to performance. And here's the new deal. You do it right, and I'll do you right. You do it wrong, it's not going to be good. And all the people said, we'll take that deal. The grumbling, complaining, sinful lot of them said, essentially, we haven't been faithful to you yet. But we're going to prove it now. Yeah, we, 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 we got this. And at Sinai, God creates another covenant with different terms. Now, I'm, I'm going to close very quickly here. Actually, if you look in Hebrews 8, God says he never liked that covenant. He never wanted that covenant. He never liked it. Why? Because it required him entering into terms that placed the onus and requirement of righteousness on people that would prove completely unrighteous, requiring him to punish them in a system that was now like every other God with every other person. So that God himself in his absolute perfection which that was always the case, but by faith he was in a different kind of relationship that permitted him to walk Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that that nation through a process of relational sanctification rather than legal sanctification. And he says, you actually want to relate to me like all the other gods. So I'll make a new covenant with you. You're going to have to do it. And in fact, when they crossed over into the promised land, he said, we're going to ratify this. I want you to go to those two mountains. I want half of you to stand on that mountain, the other half on this mountain. That's Deuteronomy 28, where he says, I want you to read the terms of the covenant. See, what God did was create, there's a valley there, right? And on the two mountains, he recreated that trough. You cut a covenant of blood, he put them on two mountains, and, and he said, shout the terms of the covenant. Do good, I treat you good. Do bad, I treat you bad. And all the people said amen. Yes, we're really going to keep blowing it. And you're really going to keep punishing us. And the rest of history shows it. And they keep blowing it and God keeps punishing. And they repent and come back. And God blesses because those are the terms of that covenant. And God said, I don't like that covenant because it's going to actually require me to pay the price with my own son to remedy it. There's an eternal commitment to remedy this. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. But the process of history to get there cost God so that he could be in a relational dynamic with man again rather than a legal performance driven dynamic 
what happens? As soon as that covenant is ratified, as soon as it's ratified at Sinai, everything changes. You think God's schizophrenic. The golden calf. <laughs> the golden calf is one of the most tragic comic moments. Right? It's the time when all the people have said, we can do this on our own. Go up, make this new deal with God. And they're already blowing it down below. And so what happens? God comes down and he tells Moses, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy them all. Now, you think, wait, God, what happened? Because you've been taking care of them so greatly in the midst of their complaining. No, we crossed the line. We're in a new deal now. God is being faithful to the terms of that covenant. The people complain. They complained before. They complain and they feast on quail, but they die by plague. A man gathers sticks on the Sabbath. Get this. He gathers sticks on the Sabbath. They've already broken the Sabbath multiple times with manna in the wilderness before Sinai. Now after Sinai, a man gathers sticks on the Sabbath. Moses goes to God and said, what should I do? God says, kill him. The rebellion of Korah and 15,000 burn with fire. They worshiped Baal at Peor. 24,000 die. It's a bloodbath. And we accuse God in the deal. We say, God, you've changed, you're different. What's wrong with you? God says, you changed, you're different. You were talking to me about faith and trusting me and the whole nation was at rest in my love and you wouldn't stay in that place of rest. You started to doubt my intentions and my motives. It was no longer working through your weakness relationally. It was you impugning my motive and my heart. So now we've got a new deal. You said yes to this. And if you don't fulfill it all, I am obligated out of the terms of that deal to give you exactly what you wanted instead of a covenant of grace with only blessing. Moses is very careful in Deuteronomy 5 to say, the Lord made this covenant with us at Sinai. He didn't make this covenant with our fathers. He says that. He says, this covenant that's happening here isn't the covenant he made with them. And Galatians 4 says, these two things were happening. The covenant with Moses was added to it didn't replace the covenant with Abraham. It was added to and ran alongside as a cruel tutor, if you will, to say, this isn't working very well, and unless somebody comes to deliver you from this, this is never going to work, and we need a Savior. And so the law codified karma. So that we could come to our senses and realize this is a bad deal. I don't want this deal. I want to trust the kindness and goodness of God and the provision of God and relate to Him out of that intimate place where He lets me know His covenant. That's Psalm 25. He yadas me in the secret place. He gives me 
a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that my old photos get broken off. The darkness gets exchanged for light and revelation and it's covenant revelation so that I can know which covenant do I want to be a part of. I can still choose. And this is the problem we have we are blood-bought, born into the covenant of grace, but we live as karmic Christians. And we actually rejoice when somebody gets what they have coming to them. It's like, well, I told him. I talked to him three different times. As if, you know, yeah, it's a big investment on your part, my friend. Wow. I gave, you know, Barry shared it. I gave that street woman 150 bucks. She ran off and did drugs with it. I hope she gets what she deserves, finally learn her lesson. I'm struggling in my own life. God, I must deserve this. Now, don't get me wrong, there are consequences. I'm not saying there aren't consequences. I'm saying the system of thought by which we relate to one another, view ourselves, and understand God is either like all the other gods or it carries the full distinction of His unique nature, kindness, and goodness which in, uh, uh, in Christ restores the promise of Abraham. Now, I'm going to talk about that more tonight. But in Christ, we get what he promised Abraham. We get out of that cyclical, damaging, unwinnable performance scenario where it's like, you know what? I'm struggling with this sin, and I fail and fail again. I got what I got coming to me unless I change. So I'm going to... I'm really gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do it now. And I reach down deep and I summon all my human strength and I recovenant myself at Sinai. Oh God, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna be impressed with me now. And I take off at full speed and I run headlong into the limits of the wall. In the limits of the law. Which is both here and there. The law is driving me to performance and it's going to slam me with my limitations. And I keep banging my head against that wall until I finally enter into the place where I say, uh, actually the last time I hit that wall, I got knocked unconscious, thank God, I, now I'm where Abraham was. I'm just going to rest here. <laughs> think I'm just going to lay here Oh God, why don't you go ahead and take over and I'm just going to receive everything you want to give me. Please change me from the inside. Do the work. Alter my chemistry. I'm going to lay here until you raise me up. And that is a different deal that none of the gods can compete with. Only our God. I think that's enough. Let's stand.
I just want us to throw our arms open. And in your mind, in your mind, you know, let's use a little holy comic imagination. Just, just picture yourself with all your human zeal and strength running headlong into the wall of performance and getting knocked out cold. And then as you're falling to the ground unconscious, let, let just two words escape your lips. Thank you. So that you can hit the ground hard enough that it rattles your brain and you get an upgrade. You get a different mindset. It's like we need holy amnesia. We hit our head hard enough, we wake up forgetting all the stuff that we were doing to try to win God's favor. There's a new revelation, there's a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him that brings illumination to our heart. And out of that friendship, that rest, He talks to us of the better blood. He talks to us of the better covenant. We discover the ark of God within is Christ made manifest in our life where his goodness contains all of our weakness and failure and the law is brought under the blood. And that starts to radiate out of us like glory and we start to think and believe and behave out of the overflow of goodness, not the karmic demands of a cruel God. We start to relate to each other. Hey, man, you, oh, yeah, you blew it. Let's laugh together because he's about to do something great in your life. And it doesn't excuse sin, far from it. It's the path of least resistance for him to do something about it. Because now you're asleep and he, he's like, well, thank goodness I can finally get some stuff done. When we do this, we live holy by accident more than we ever could awaken on purpose. So God, let the extravagance of your heart, the terms of righteousness according to the new covenant, that what you gave Abraham so that he could be the father of all. Oh God, we want to be the children of Abraham. We want to be the children of the father Abraham knew that called him out of Babylon and said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless you until you believe I'm, I want to bless you. And you're going to mess up, but we're going to have relational sanctification not legal sanctification. I'll take care of the legalities on my end. I'll march through the blood alone. You stay in the place of rest. Holy Spirit, would you shine this light in our hearts? The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you enlighten the eyes of our spirit. Oh, we want to see this God-man Jesus. We want to see him crucified and resurrected. And now, the intimate communion where the Ark of the Covenant has set up residence in our tabernacle. There's no more veils. 
There's nothing we have to do. We just say, yes, we believe. You take us into the promised land, and I declare right here, the promised land for us is a promised man. And we say yes to him. We receive him. We receive him. And God, would you break karmic thinking? Would you break karmic relationships where we rejoice in one another's weakness and failure so that they can get what they deserve and hopefully repent and get back in line with you and we relate to them out of that thinking, but we don't like it when they relate to us out of that thinking. And God, would you just change all the thinking? Oh, just, just stretch out your arms like I, I, I can't even do this. I just receive. This is, this is a lot of head information, but the receiving is an impartation at the heart. Covenant God, out of friendship, would you make known to us your covenant? Just soak us to the bone. That is the appropriate response right there. Oh, God, we just enjoy you. We just say yes and thank you. My last thought before I hit the ground is thank you. Thank you, God. We receive. We receive. Break the shackles of performance and lies and unbelief. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Wow. I hope this is appropriate to share this right now. I don't want to. <laughs> oh. But I woke up and as I was getting ready this morning, I, I heard yin and yang. And I just and I just felt the Lord saying that there there are many people here that that receive this into our, our our kingdom theology is the yin and the yang, equal part good and equal part bad. And we're going to do we're going to have a good run, and then all of a sudden, because we had this good run, we believe now we're going to have a, oh something what bad's going to happen to us. And I just really feel that this morning we need to be set free from Eastern mysticism of yin and yang. That, that the blessing of God is, is that he, he wants to pour out his goodness. That there, there's no recompense. That he took the pain. He took the, the peril. And he took the, what, what was supposed to be to us. We could not afford to pay. But what Jesus did paid the price. 
So I just want to break that curse off of your mentality today. I want to take authority over that spirit and plead the blood of Jesus Christ against that yin and yang and that Eastern mysticism that we, we believe that we're going to have a good run and then something bad or something bad now something good. No, there's no equal part good and equal part bad. There's only one God and his name is Jesus, our Father in heaven. And in, we decree and declare freedom today. Freedom today over that mentality in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Woo! Hallelujah. It's so good, and it is true. And, Father, we can't take our eyes off of you. You are like heaven to touch. Oh, God, we love you so much. It's, it, this is the gospel of the kingdom of grace. It's too good and it's true. <laughs> if we can, I think if we can sum this weekend up is, Father, it's too good and it's true. And, Father, from this point on, we're not going to take our eyes off of you. <laughs> In Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. Bless you. Just go in a posture of receiving. If you walk out the door and you're thinking, man, I got to get that, I got to get that, it's already slipping back in. Come on. No, I'm serious. It's already, it's so easy to slip back in. Bam! Yes. Go knowing that he's more committed to you to get this than you are. You, you, so, so leave in rest and receiving. Go eat some food. We'll come back tonight at 7. seven. Bless you. Amen. Amen.